Welcome to this special bonus episode of My Family Recipe. I'm Kelly Spivey, the Julia Child Foundation Fellow at Heritage Radio Network. I have the privilege of listening in on and editing all the conversations happening on My Family Recipe. I can't wait for you to hear what we have in store. Over the last few episodes, we've heard the stories behind some cherished heirloom recipes like Lisa Ruland's chocolate cake and Kala Del Khatib's mushroom cheesy bread. Today, I'm delighted to welcome the host of My Family Recipe, Arthi Menon. Arthi is the lead editor of Food 52's My Family Recipe essay series and has published work in Architectural Digest, GQ, Monocle, and many other publications. Arthi grew up hanging off the petticoat tails of three generations of Indian matriarchs who used food to speak their language of love, and she finds herself instinctually following suit. Welcome, Arthi. How does it feel to be in the guest chair today? Hi, Kelly. Honored to be here, but also it's mildly terrifying to be on the other side. I have to admit, you know, talking about these things can make you feel, talking about personal histories and family histories and stories can make you feel a little vulnerable, a little bit exposed, but honestly delighted to be here. Thank you. And that's actually a perfect segue in the first question I have for you, which is, you know, you've had a lot of conversations with writers who have shared some very intimate stories related to family recipes, but, you know, to their lives in general. How have these conversations affected the way you look at your own family recipes and what are some things that you love about having these conversations? Whether you're talking about it or writing about it or working with your editor on articulating it, personal histories and personal relationships and personal memories can can make you feel really vulnerable. And that's why I always say to the writers that I have the pleasure of editing for the My Family Recipe column that I'm truly, truly honored that they, one, choose to share their stories and histories with our readers, but also trust me as the editor. I've selfishly waited for the chance to speak to some of these wonderful essays. Just taking these columns off the pages, so to speak, and bringing them to listeners and having the opportunity to chat to these people and and hear their voices and giving them the space to expand their storytelling, that just take something that I feel so passionately about and feel so honored to be doing and makes it that much more special. I've learned that the beauty of a treasured family recipe is that they're always about more than the dish. They help us explore our layered histories and it kind of transcends the personal to reveal so much about the world we live in, what we eat and how we eat reveal sort of bigger truths and trickier, far more complex issues uh, around, let's say, cultural identity and access and representation. So yes, it's the personal, but it, it always transcends. And the other thing that I've thought about is that in celebrating the past, because with many family recipes, you are drawing from the past, what you're actually doing is drawing those memories of people and events into your present and in exploring them, you're making sense of the present and also the future. Yeah, I love that. I I like the idea that they are kind of this living history that just goes through generations and it goes through all these permutations, but it still has such a tie for people. 
You have shared that you grew up with women who used food to speak their language of love. Can you tell me a little more about that? Indeed, I did. I credit them with my love for food, my creative curiosity for it, my palate, but also sort of for giving me a sense of understanding of why it's critical to examine where my food comes from, who the people behind it are, issues around seasonality and supply chains and all of it. So I I have to say that it all really begins with my great-grandmother, my Iemuchi. I didn't have too many years with her. I, you know, she passed away, I want to say too young, but I really have to credit her with a lot of this because my mother and my grandmother in turn are sort of spitting images of her, uh, at least as far as I can see. So my great-grandmother lived in a tiny village in the state of Kerala in southern India. There was no running water for the longest time. Electricity was sketchy at best. She was the matriarch of this ancestral home or tarwar as we call it. It's sort of the family home that everyone flocks to come the holidays. And it's not just our immediate family. Everyone would come, cousins and cousins of cousins. And invariably, you didn't know half the people that arrived every summer. So we'd all sort of congregate here. And she was the kind of matriarch. And when I say matriarch, you you probably have images of this, you know, physically strong woman sort of like running about. And you have this certain idea of what she looked like. In fact, she was really frail and small and gentle of manner and speech but she ran this giant household in a village and where she had access to very little. I don't even know if she asked for it. She was widowed too young and she sort of fell into this role and she was cooking all the time. And a lot of my favorite memories of her are around food and very tactile sort of memories. So she would travel a lot. And again, it was not because she enjoyed travel and was making a holiday of it because in her role as matriarch, she would go around looking after relatives that were going through a tough time or were sick or had just had babies and needed an extra set of hands. So she traveled to Burma and she traveled to Malaysia and she'd come back and her head would be full of these wonderful new foods that she tried and she'd come back and want to replicate them immediately for all of us, except access was few and far between. So she couldn't find the ingredients. So she made creative substitutions. She didn't have the tools. So she had a friend, her trusty ironsmith who would come and they would design tools together and he would hand forge these tools and she would use them. And of course, it was tricky because all the cooking was done on open fire and there was no running water. So there was a lot of sort of, lot of iterations that were made. Um, and I, and my mother has some of these tools. So she, here was this little lady cooking up a storm, feeding people, I'm not sure I ever saw her eat herself. And this makes me a little sad to say this because she was busy feeding others. So this this was my great-grandmother, slight but of kind of immense strength and um, teaching us so much that we now take for granted around food. That's so lovely. I relate to that on a lot of uh, levels. I had a grandmother that was the same way. Like she couldn't make enough food. I don't think I ever saw her eat any of it, but there was just... The kitchen was always like wall-to-wall food all the time. There are a few lessons, I think, that she passed down to my grandmother, who I absolutely adored. I literally hung off her coattails. And my mother, who is, you know, a gigantic presence in my life. Um, And so a few of the lessons I learned from them is there was just never such a thing as too much food. So there'd be five people at the table and there would be food for 20. 
And the other thing that I will always carry with me is that you never need an occasion for special food. There's always cake or pudding. And uh, whether it's a Sunday or a Tuesday, you want alibele, like go and pancakes on a Tuesday afternoon at four? Why not? My mother is racing to the kitchen to whip it up because why not? The other thing that I haven't quite learned, but I aspire to learn from them, is that somehow they were able to take the effort out of cooking and find the joy in it. If, the, if their health was willing and if the ingredients were around, they'd, they'd make it. And there was no thank you needed. I mean, we appreciated it, of course, when my grandmother would lie to us and tell us she was taking a nap, but she was actually in the kitchen making a bunch of treats for us and then come and lie down next to us like she was there all along and things like that. So, I mean, we definitely appreciated it, but there was never thanks required. And just the immense effort it took to make absolutely everything we ever wanted and asked for must have been quite something. And then I think the thing that I'm learning more and more as I live thousands of miles away from my parents and my sister is that familiar foods are so, they, they transport you and they can carry you home. And it's so important at a time when getting home, when I say home, I mean India, it will always be home, as is my home in Brooklyn. So important and now I know why it's so important for my mom to stuff a pressure cooker into a suitcase to bring here, uh, much to my dad's displeasure. He thinks border officials will arrest her any day now. But it's important to her, you know, and she'll come and set up shop and, and make all the things that I love because she knows it has the power to transport me back home. What's one of the things that they that your great-grandmother or grandmother cooked that, that you still crave today? There is actually one food sort of, it is a recipe, but more than a recipe, it's sort of like a food tradition or ritual. And it's, again, earliest memories of my great-grandmother, but my grandmother and mother included. And it's around kanji, what we call kanji, our version of kanji, sort of rice gruel or rice porridge. In Kerala, people, I mean, friends laugh at me when I say one of my favorite foods is kanji because it's often seen as sort of sick person food. Or, uh, you know, you've had a hard day of, you've put in a hard day of labor and you're absolutely starving and you need to fill your belly and you need to fill it now. You shove some kanji down and you get back to work. So it's it's often sort of like looked down on. And for me, though, kanji was like, kanji was and is a big deal. So for me, when I think about it, I mean, I close my eyes and then I'm back in that little village with my great grandmother We'd have lunch really early. In fact, I want to say it was it was more brunch. So at about 11 o'clock, I would hear the lunch gong go off. And it was a huge space because it was a working farm and it had fields attached and all of that. And I would be, I don't know, feeding the buffaloes or cows or petting the goats or whatever. And you'd hear the gong go off and make a dash for it. And they weren't dining tables. It was, it was a very rural environment. So we'd have these massive stone plinths outside of the kitchen and we'd climb on and all of us sit in a row, two rows facing each other, and there'd be a banana leaf and the kanji would come out. And it could be served with, I mean, there's so many variations to it. That's what I find so fascinating about kanji. In most basic form, it, a little bit of salt and some ghee and a little bit of puliinji, which is this ginger tamarind kind of sauce chutney thing. And that's it. But it could also be served with 
six different accompaniments. You know, you could have a scrambled egg, or you could have deep fried mati or sardines, you could have shrimp, you could have all kinds of things. So we'd sit there and my grandmother would switch it all up. And so, yeah, I have these wonderful memories of kanji. And why I would pick this again and again is because to me, it stands for everything that my great grandmother and then my mother and grandmother stand for, which is sort of like creativity and resourcefulness and and also the transformation of something that is so everyday into something special. In my mother's case, our love for kanji, so she passed it down, obviously, and we all love it. And so my mother began experimenting with with kanji and its various um, cultural interpretations and then started uh, experimenting with like a Sri Lankan uh, version of pal kanji, which is cooked in coconut milk. So it's basically basically kanji republic at home. (laughs) So holidays back home could well start with something far more exciting, but it's when my mother brings out the stainless steel thali plate with built-in compartments for all the accompaniments for the kanji is when kind of that feeling of home sinks in. I love the ceremony of all of it. Yes, yes. So Imuchi, the great-grandmother I speak of, um, she used to actually fashion spoons for the kanji because... um, Sometimes it would be watery, so you need kind of like a soup spoon, really, to scoop it all up. And she used to fashion leaves out of a native tree, which had these perfectly rounded leaves and very pliable leaves. So she'd fold them up into a spoon and kind of deftly stick in a a twig and kind of fashion these soup spoons out of it. Wow. She sounds incredible. She was really incredible. I mean, the resourcefulness, I, I cannot even, when I think back on that village, there was nothing there. You grew what you needed and ate that, and there was nothing else. But she'd come back from Burma with a Khao Sui recipe and she'd come back from Malaysia with a Mihun recipe and she still produced it, her version of it. Well, that's how you get the family recipe. Yes, yes, indeed. How did you, did they teach you to cook? There was certainly no sort of formal teaching or training. But when I say I hung off their coattails, I literally did. I was an absolute nuisance in the kitchen. So whether it was my great grandmother watching her cook over that open fire or drawing water from the well, you know, like I was always around. And even with my grandmother, I sadly only had 11 years with my grandma, but about 50 years of memories because I'd sit with her in the kitchen and she'd give me little tasks like shelling peas or, you know, things like that. And my mom, I did the same with my mom. I still do. I'm following her around everywhere. But it was kind of like a masterclass that I didn't know I was attending. I kind of absorbed things, things I don't even remember seeing firsthand, but somehow know how to do. It's like muscle memories. I do constantly check in with my mom on recipes. She'll send me texts. I I suddenly remember something that I really miss and she'll send me a recipe for it. But there's other things I feel that are interesting in how you pick them up. Like, I don't know, when you make a dosa, you season the pan with an onion, with a slice, with a cut onion or... I soak my rice before cooking it and drain it multiple times, soak it, drain it, soak it, drain it, and then cook it. And people ask me why, and I have no idea, but I do it anyway. Or rubbing like, I don't know, like rubbing oil on your hands before cutting certain vegetables so they don't stain, like beetroot, or like before you chop chili so it doesn't sort of burn. Okay, so are you ready for a rapid fire round? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Let's do it. What is the last song that you listened to? It was probably either something by 
Bonobo, this British DJ, or a, another, a British music collective that I, my husband just introduced me to called Salt. It was probably something by one of them because Bonobo has a new single out and Salt I've just discovered. So I'm oh, listening to Great. I always love to learn about new music. So now I have two new ones. Yay. <laughs> What's your favorite holiday? Probably Diwali, just because of all the lights and India literally lights up because people have these beautiful decorative beers out and their homes are lit up and all the food. It's it's snack and dessert paradise when Diwali comes around and then all the beautiful marigold flowers and the rangolis or the decorative kind of like um, designs we, we make around, outside of our house with rice flour and like colored powder. Yeah, there's just all these wonderful decorations and food rituals that are just, they're beautiful. Are you a coffee or tea drinker? Coffee. (laughs) I start dreaming about my morning cup of coffee as I'm falling asleep. I am not kidding you. It's a thing because before I go to bed, I set my, I have a little South Indian brass filter that's really like, rudimentary looking thing which works beautifully it's like um and it's a slow drip so I set it the night before because I cannot wait a second after I get up to make it and it takes ages to drip so coffee 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 although on a rainy day and we've had plenty of that this year nothing like a masala chai uh with a couple of milk toast to dip in and and eat oh I so relate I coffee is my favorite thing and I don't prep it the night before, but I do not do anything else before I make coffee in the morning. (laughs) What's the last show that you binge watched? So I have been binge watching a show. It's not a new show. It's, I don't know, 2015, 2016. Um, A show called Broadchurch. It's a British uh, crime series. Yes. Do you watch it? Yes. I watched it a few months ago. It's only like three seasons, right? Three seasons, yes, and then they killed it. It is incredible. It's so great. I So I binge-watched one and two. I've been meaning to for, I don't know, a few years, and I'm on three now. I'm obsessed with British crime shows. Okay, and then the last, uh, last question, what's your go-to takeout order? We don't do takeout very often, I'll be honest, because um, one, I cook a lot, and two, we prefer to sort of go to a local restaurant, and we have quite a few local favorites. There is one thing that we do order quite often, and it's the amazing avocado sandwich from the deli down the road. Uh, It is really, truly amazing. So um, I have that once in a while for lunch on a busy day, and it's sort of filled with goodness avocado and greens and roasted peppers and... Uh, spicy mango chutney. It's delicious. That and a bag of kettle chips. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Thank you for listening and thank you for joining us on a journey because it really is a journey as we explore the stories around these wonderful family recipes. And I hope you'll keep joining in. Thank you so much for listening to this special bonus episode of My Family Recipe. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow the show on your favorite podcast platform and share it with your family and friends. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to let us know what you thought of our delicious stories so far. 
Special thanks for this episode to Arthi Menon. My Family Recipe is produced by Dylan Hoyer and Hannah Forden. Our Julia Child Foundation Fellow is Kelly Spivey. Our audio engineer for this episode is Matt Patterson. Coral Lee is Food 52 Podcast Network's producer. Our theme song is Vitoro by Aeronaut. This show is a collaboration between Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. There's much more to read and listen to. Find even more stories at food52.com and heritageradionetwork.org.